0: Hey, good morning, UCC, and welcome to church. Hopefully, you are enjoying this bright, beautiful, and really cold morning. This is day number 853, since I need a haircut. But apart from that, welcome. I hope you're having a good day this morning. This morning's sermon is going to be a bit of a doozy. So on your screen is a text, uh, a texting question. I'm going to be saying some things this morning. Uh, I'm going to be naming names <laughs> this morning. I'm um, not pulling any kind of theological or um, philosophical punches. So just take note of that uh, texting for questions because you may want to um, ask some questions about some of the things I've said. So the sermon series we started last week was called Confronting Christianity. And remember I mentioned to you that it was based upon this book by... Um, Rebecca McLaughlin, and basically what she does is she asks 12 tough questions of Christianity. And so the series is basically asking some questions about who we are as Christ followers. Now, the world always tells us what we are and who we are, and what we have to ask ourselves is, are these characterizations actually true? Right. So that's actually kind of important, right? Because what we hear out in culture, what we hear out in media, what we hear out in the news is that Christians are, and then fill in the blanks. But statistically, in data, and in in regards to theology, is that actually true. So what the series wants to be is a series that kind of looks at these narratives and kind of unpacks them to see the truth behind them. Um, So let's just recap what we talked about last week. So remember I said to you last week that as we kind of walk our way through this series, there's two premises that are going to kind of influence my take on this. The first one was, is that whatever we understand about the Bible, however we understand scripture, we have to always remember that scripture is only applied to those who believe it. (laughs) The <laughs> So if I'm having a conversation with an atheist, I'm not gonna use the Bible, at least not in the beginning for sure, to kind of talk about idea of faith and values and all that because they don't recognize the Bible's authority. And, and again, Paul mentions this to the church in Corinth, right? What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? And again, I think we as Christians have made a huge mistake this way in regards to trying to engage the culture which no longer accepts the authority of the Bible or probably doesn't even accept the authority of Jesus and saying to them, you must live by the rules of this book. And people are saying, well, I don't accept your book. I don't accept the authority of your book. Therefore, why are you telling me to live by it? The second one is, as we have to always remember, people aren't the enemy. It feels like people are the enemy. It feels like people are are against us. But again, Paul against says in Ephesians, for our, our struggle <clears throat> is not against flesh and blood. So what we always want to make sure is that we are, Not attacking people, because again, as I said last week, people are the mission, right? For God so loved the world. Not the world in regards to creation and all that. God did love that, but he loves his people. And when we act and behave in ways that actually set barriers up to uh, people in interacting, having conversations about, about God that's actually detrimental to our faith, right? And so what we I said last week as well too that there have been more shifts culturally in the last eight years than has occurred in the last 50 years. And again, if you are you know, looking at social media, you're watching news, you're reading newspapers, wh- however you receive your information, it feels a lot like the world has kind of lost its mind, right, culturally, socially, anthropo- anthropologically, financially, right? things are upside down and as Christ followers you know we are called to actually navigate this in a way that doesn't bring disgrace to Jesus bring disgrace to God but in a way that actually is kind of um gracious, but also informed. And again, many Christians are actually wrestling with what that looks like. And I said to you as well, too, that there are tensions that we want to keep as we're having this conversation, right? So we want to be compassionate, but we also want to hold to our convictions. We want to have a posture that is you know, uh, based upon humility, but we also want to have a position that is based upon, uh, sorry, uh, I, I went a little further. So what we want to do is as we kind of navigate these conversations, what I'm going to try to do, and this morning I'm definitely going to fail on this, but we want to make sure that we are having conversations with people that are are, are going to kind of keep the center of this, right? So when I say compassion, what we really want to do is listen. I think Christians would benefit from listening to people's stories, listening to people's uh, viewpoints a lot more than telling people what they are. Our posture, again, humble. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The way Christians best interact with our culture is as servants, again, to mimic Jesus, right? And that's how I think we should navigate through this world. Our position has to always be biblical and we're going to We are going to unpack that in a big way this morning, right? So whatever whatever stance we make, whatever stance that we have, we always want to make sure that we can connect it with the Bible, and I'll unpack that a little bit more this morning. Again, our conviction is becoming like Jesus. And again, the reason I say becoming is because all of our spiritual journeys are just that, journeys, right? Transformation is a process. We haven't figured it out. We don't have it all together. Goodness, no. But it's a process, right? We're learning, we're growing, and we are becoming more and more like Jesus. At least that's what's supposed to happen. I said last week that when we look at the gospel, right, that the gospel, according to the Bible and according to culture, apart from the last perhaps 100 years, has any topic that you can think about in this world, the gospel addresses. right? Anything that you can think about that's happening in the world right now If you understand the gospel in a biblical way, in the the biblical story, it addresses it. And then historically, this has been how Christians have navigated the world. Now, unfortunately, Christians are not thinking about the gospel or thinking about how the Bible talks about it. They're actually navigating it through what the history is. And I said to you last week as well, too, that there has been a huge cultural shift, right? So there used to be this way of looking at the world that we talked about this idea of truth and we talk about truth as a propositional binary linear right 1 plus 2 plus 3 right yes no these are our binary ways of looking and 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 this has been the way culture historically has looked at truth however in the last uh, depending on who you talk to but let's just say 50 years there has been a shift from truth as a binary proposition to a narrative, and in, in, I talked about this last week, the story. People's stories are almost more important than what is true and what is not true. right? Stories are disorganized or contradictory, and they're emotional. And so Christians are trying to explain the gospel in a positional, binary, linear way, but unfortunately, the culture is actually responding in a different way Now. We talked about this last week as well, too, and again, I keep saying that, so you can go on our website, if, in case you missed last week's sermon, and you can review it if, if you want, but what's interesting is early Christianity was all about story. It was the story of Jesus. It was the story of the Holy Spirit. It was the story of God. This is how Christians would convey, and we talked about this idea of testimony, right? Your testimony is your story with God. Right? And again, it's not just about when you became a Christ follower, when you became saved, but it's every day. right? That's the beauty of what we experience with who God is, is that our stories are unfolding. But see, the thing is, though, this is what the world wants to know. right? The world wants to know is, does Jesus actually make a difference in your lives? And again, that's something that we as Christ followers have to be aware of, because that's what the world is saying to us. So the reason for this series is and and just again to repeat this to you the purpose of this series is to understand and to be understood to seek to have better conversations about God. Again, the world has flipped upside down. And again, God's not surprised by this. The Holy Spirit is absolutely at work in the world, but we as Christ followers have to think and 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 behave and speak and communicate differently because Uh, If we don't, what's going to happen is we are going to miss out on opportunities. I think the world desperately needs to hear what authentic, use that word authentic, uh, Christ followers have to say, right? And we do that through our stories, our testimonies. We do that through the Bible's position. And again, how the Bible actually talks about it as opposed to other ways. So this morning is going to be uh, part two to this idea of confronting Christianity. So before we confront culture, Before we confront these other narratives, we first must turn the gaze to ourselves. So last week we talked about the kind of foundation, and today we're going to talk about Christians. And I'm going to use the word pseudo-Christians. I'm going to use the word false Christians, and that's going to be controversial, but you'll see why I unpack it. And so what we need to understand is, we talk about stories today, we talk about our culture, and again, you can look at the world, you can look at especially at Christians, I do, and I ask myself, what is going on right What is going on? What has gone on politically, racially, sexually? what is going on in, in regards to government and lockdowns and um, and all these type of things like like what is actually happening in the world so there is a philosophy that is actually under girding or being the foundation of this idea of, of narrative and, and unpacking. So the philosophy is, and again, for you who are theology, philosophy nuts, you're going to love this. It's, it's, it's a philosophy called deconstructionism, or sometimes just called deconstruction, which is a 20th century school in philosophy initiated by a guy named Jacques Derrida in the 1960s. It's a theory of literary criticism that questions traditional assumptions about certainty, identity, and truth. That should ring a bell, right? So what's happening in our culture today is we are re-looking at narratives or truth in a historical sense and asking ourselves, is this actually true? So deconstructionism is this way of kind of re-examining these things and saying, hmm, did this actually happen? Was this actually true? And again, Certainty, identity, and truth. Now, this started off as a literary cri- criticism, but it has since been applied to every aspect of society. Jacques Derrida, you know, shortly before he died, uh, this is a quote he said in 1990. Deconstruction is neither a theory nor a philosophy. It is neither a school nor a me- method. It is not even a discourse or an act nor a practice. It is what is happened, what is is happening today, and what it, what what they call society, politics, diplomacy, economics, and so on and so forth. So what happened was in the 1960s, Jacques Derrida came up to, came up with deconstructionism as a way of re-examining texts. Right? It was a literary thing, and again. You're asking yourself, who cares? Well, what was interesting is it caught people's imagination to apply it not just to literary texts, but to culture, right? So Western culture is being deconstructed, or a better way of understanding it, for those of you who want to, is Western culture is being dismantled, right, from its Judeo-Christian roots. I've told you before that when I was a child, uh, I loved taking things apart. I always wanted to know how things operated, right? So sometimes if I got a toy or if it wasn't a toy, I would take it apart. Now, taking apart something is awesome because you don't have to know what you're doing. <laughs> you, can, you can take a hammer to it. You can unscrew all the screws from it because all you need to do is undo what somebody else has done. What I was never quite successful, especially with electronic stuff, is putting it back together right? So what's interesting is deconstruction or dismantling has dismantled Western society, which again, was based upon Judeo-Christian roots, right? Western culture... Whether you like it or not, um, was based upon a biblical understanding of the world you know i 'm going to show you a little snapshot of ni- in 1946 So in 1946, which is a year after World War II was over, in 1945 the USA dropped a nuclear bomb in Japan, right Hiroshima. And what happened was is these 22 Protestant leaders in America put out a statement condemning such a use of force and and the atrocities of what took place remember they're looking at a year afterwards and you're seeing the fallout of it literally and also what's taking place so these evangelical Protestant leaders came out and spoke out against it, which, again, I think was pretty cool. But look what uh, one commentator said about it. The church leaders spoke to the, uh, on the common understanding that America was a Christian nation within Western Christian civilization and within that comedy of nations, the Christian church determined what was morally right or wrong. In 1946, in the 1950s, the church was the center of morality. Right? And people use this phrase a lot. You know, Canada used to be Britain used to be France, used to be America used to be a Christian nation. That is actually a lie, right? A nation isn't Christian. The values that a nation can adopt can be from Christianity. But again, 1946 today is a long time and again. So many cultural uh, tsunamis have hit us that this is no longer the case. But people think and operate as if, this is still true. Spoiler alert, this is not true. And so what we have, then, is this whole way of looking at the world. Now, I want to show you kind of something kind of fun. Um, and when I use the word fun, it's fun for me. I don't know if you're going to think it's fun. But a guy by the name of Edward Gibbon wrote a book in the 1700s. And the book was called The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. I came upon it because I read Francis Schaeffer's How Should We Then Live book because he referenced it. So I went back and I found this book and the writings of it. <coughs> Now, what's interesting about this book is what, uh, what Edward Gibbon does is he looks at five markers of the decline of the Roman Empire. Now, why am I telling you this? Because, of course, you're asking yourself, I thought I was coming into a sermon this morning, apart from a history lesson. You know me. I love history. Look what the five things is. That he saw that was the decline of the Roman Empire. Because these five things, I would argue quite convincingly, are the five markers of the demise of Western society as we have traditionally understood it. So the five attributes marked Rome at its end. First, a mounting show of love, a mounting love of show and luxury. Check. Second, a winding gap between the very rich and the very poor. Check. Third, an obsession with sex. Check, 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 check. Fourth, freakishness in the arts masquerading as originality and enthusiasms pretending to be creativity. Check, 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 check. Now look at the number five. And fifth, an increased desire to live off the state. Check. Edward Gibbon could have written this five years ago, two years ago, five weeks ago, in regards to Western culture, because all five of these markers are what is identified in Western culture. Now, what Edward Gibbons says, what Francis Schaeffer said, and again, Francis Schaeffer's book came out in the 90s, is that these are the markers. This is the way of looking at the demise of a cultural value, but something else is going to replace it. Now, remember, when the Roman Empire uh, declined, there was a vacuum created, Right There's a vacuum created politically, there's a vacuum created militarily, but there's a vacuum created in regards to philosophy. And so something else had to move in. Now, the good news was, and again, I would argue the good news, some other people may not, the church was there. And the church moved in to fill the gaps of what the Roman Empire um, missed out on. However, the church, Christianity, Western culture was based upon this idea of the Bible, it is now collapsed, right? So, as I said to you before, it is one thing to dismantle, to deconstruct society. It is altogether a different thing to to replace it with something else. What we are seeing right now in our world, in the last eight years especially, are people are deconstructing Western culture and they are proposing different ways of looking at the culture. These different ways are not catching on with people, Right? They are definitely creating more tribalism, more separation, more isolation, but they are not uniting. For a um, philosophy to be truly effective is it has to grab everybody, create a safe place for diversity, and then create a way of moving forward. These new philosophies that are popping up are not doing any of that, but we'll, we'll get to that eventually. So obviously, as I was writing this series as I've, as I've been researching it, and I've been doing a ton of reading... Um, John is still in my mind, right? John is still in my mind. First John, chapter two. John never assumes that just because you call yourself a Christian, you're actually a Christian. Remember I kept saying to you that John keeps testing the authenticity of your faith. John is asking uh, some tough questions of two types of groups, right? The second and third generation of Christians, but also Gnosticism. Remember that word Gnosticism, right? Gnosticism is secret knowledge of God which is kind of what we're going to be talking about this morning. So in 1 John, throughout the book, and again, I just just took chapter two, but throughout the other chapters as well too, John keeps saying, if you act like this, if you believe these things, right, then you are showing that you are not actually belonging of God, that you are actually not a true or authentic Christ follower. Now, that may offend you, but in the early church, they were made of tougher stuff. Right In the early church, and again, I could have gone uh, down a rabbit hole on this one, but in the early church, they never assumed that your belief was whatever you chose it to be and your behavior is whatever you choose, choose chose it to be. So in the Bible, it never says to you, just pick whatever you think is appropriate or take the Bible and and, and apply it and to the world today, but also just ignore the things that bother you or things you don't understand, Right? As a matter of fact, the New Testament, the letters, right? So the letters of the New Testament are Corinthians, Ephesians, Galatians, these, all these letters that we have. They were all responses to either wrong behavior or wrong belief. Don't believe me? Go back and read them. right? The letters are written to churches when they were acting wrong or believing wrong. That should tell you something, that the apostles of the early church were very interested in our belief and our behavior. Right? And again, I've said to you before, I'll say to you again, you cannot disconnect belief and behavior, okay? If you uh, t- disconnect either of these ones, you are not going to be living an authentic biblical Christianity. Now, we see through the, uh, the early church, and again, through other writings, and again, don't want to go too far down this, this path, but we see time and time again that there were deceitful teachers teaching things different than the apostles, Right? time and time again we see throughout the new testament and again this is the first 60 years of the church while the apostles are still alive people are coming along and saying well you know Paul he had some good things to say but he missed out on this you know Peter he was okay you know if you just read second peter chapter the whole chapter 2 it's all about false teachers and false and false te- uh, false teachings and false teachers right now why am i saying this this morning well uh if you want to look for another book to read, uh, uh, Alyssa Childers wrote another book called Another Gospel. And it's a a response to something called progressive Christianity, which is what we're going to be talking about this morning. Now, progressive Christianity is a very interesting subset of Christianity, but I would say to you, it is the un-gospel. It is not really Christianity. It is The New Age movement, you know, calling itself Christianity, but we'll get to that in a second. So what's interesting is, is this false teaching today is what's happening in the church as we we know it. So let me give you a brief history of Western Christianity. So in Western Christianity, there are three major groups, right? There are Catholicism, there's Protestants, and Protestants break down into two groups, right? So you have mainline and you have evangelical. Let's take a look at mainline first, right? So when I say mainline Protestants, I'm talking United, I'm talking Presbyterian, I'm talking Anglican, I'm talking, you know, the big seven, right? So the mainline denominations in the 1960s dealt with this thing on this idea of how do we want to be relevant? So the mainline denominations, they kind of began to change who they were with this concept of liberalism. Now, let me just briefly tell you what liberalism is. Um, liberalism is both a tradition, by the way, this comes out of uh, three out of the seven um, uh, church's main webpage, page, the, the denomination web I took I took this from them. Liberalism is both a tradition coming out of the late 18th century Protestant attempts to reconfigure traditional Christianity teaching in the light of modern knowledge and values, relevancy, and a diverse but recognizable approach to theology. So some of the tenets of liberalism is true religion is not based upon external authority. Truth can be known only through changing systems, symbols and forms. Theological controversy is about language, not about truth. The historical accuracies of the biblical facts and events are not crucial. So, what's interesting is, is in the in, in the late um, in the early 60s up till about the early 90s, these mainline churches began to make uh, declarations about theology about. Uh, sexuality, about truth, about symbolism, in a way that other Christians kind of went, huh, the only way you're able to do so is when you start disconnecting the Bible for, as, as a source of authority. Now, understand, I don't mean to say that you're not allowed to look at the Bible and say, what does it mean? But what you're not allowed to do to the Bible is, is begin to change what it says, right? Remember I've said to you, that before you can make the Bible say something else, you must first accept what it's saying. I'm going to add a second thing to it. The second statement I want you to think about is, if you do change the Bible, please show your work. In other words, it's a math problem, right? Remember math problems? Show how you got the solution. Well, with people who make changes to the Bible, they have to show how they came to these changes. So for example, in the Old Testament, don't eat pigs, right? In the New Testament, right? What, what do we have? we have? We have the vision that God gave Peter and says, now I've removed the dietary restrictions for, for Jewish people if they so choose so. But again, we have Acts chapter 15, right? The, for the Gentiles, right? What, 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 how are Gentiles supposed to act? So what happens is the mainline denominations basically um, change who they were. My wife sent me this article. This is from May 23rd, 2021. This is Very recent. This comes from the National Post. The title of the article is COVID May Have Hastened Christianity's Decline in Canada. This is actually true, right? So in the article, it says a couple statements. It says this We've got simple projections from our data that suggest that there will be no members, no attenders, or givers in the Anglican Church. Of Canada in approximately 2040. By the way, 2040 I think is way too far off. In the article, they talk about 2030, and I think 2030, which again, only nine years from now the Anglican Church in Canada will no longer exist. But that's not just the Anglican Church, the other churches as well too. While the Catholic Church will be gone in 2040 Canada, certainly not, but largely because immigration to Canada. So Catholicism isn't finding its roots in those who are in Canada, but from immigration from other countries, Latin America, um, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and and other parts of the world, Catholicism is still uh, strong-ish, And by immigration, they're coming to Canada and they're propping up the Catholic Church. But the Catholic Church is in huge trouble because it doesn't have enough priests to actually take care of the churches. I know of Catholic priests who take care of five or six different parishes, right? And again, same thing with Anglicanism and all that. Now, please understand something. I don't rejoice at the demise of anybody. OK, I don't rejoice at the demise of anything. And so this is not about this is not uh, an evangelical saying, yes, these people are, are, are dying. I'm not that guy. Right. I've said this before. I know of, of quite a few devout Catholics who love Jesus. I know quite a few devout Anglicans and, and so on. I, so I don't think I I don't I don't I don't I don't roll that way. Right? So but what happens is the data suggests that when these denominations changed how how they saw themselves, what happens is this idea of liberalism is basically have killed off these denominations. I talked to an Anglican priest who told me a very interesting fact. He said that they can document that when an Anglican parish adopts this concept of liberalism and begins to change the way it sees itself, that, that that adoption of those values, basically these churches will begin to die. Right across Canada, he said, except for a couple of parishes in Toronto. <laughs> but apart from that, he says, in Canada, when these parishes in rural and different cities adopt a liberalism as, as a way of uh, navigating, he says, we can almost tell you that these, these, these parishes will die. Now, again, there's a reason for that, and I'll get to that. But now, let's go to evangelicals, right? So evangelicals didn't change what we, wh- who we were, but it did change how we did things, right? So in the early 80s, what was interesting about evangelicals, because, again, that was me, that's how old I am, is that one of the things that churches would say about evangelicals, what mainlines would say about evangelicals, oh, they have electric guitars, as if that was the, the way of doing right? We got rid of organs and hymn books, and we're now in worship, and we look more rock and roll. And So evangelicals didn't change who we were, but we changed what we do. We, we really adopted a methodology that was meant to be more attractive to the culture. But again, that's a poison pill as well too, but it just takes a bit of a longer. So what takes place is evangelicalism, when we basically change what we do, we allow two concepts to infiltrate the church, and I would say consumerism and capitalism, which are, again, two different things. Consumerism is that we have this idea of people shopping around, right? And this idea of capitalism. You know what I find so interesting about, about evangelicals? Is evangelicals will look at people like Joyce Heron and uh, 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 Paula White and other prosperity gospels, T.D. Jakes, prosperity gospel is if you believe strong enough, God's gonna give you money or he's gonna heal you or he's gonna give you whatever you want, which again is completely unbiblical. And so evangelicals have looked at that and we've turned our noses up at that and said, well, that's not us. Did you know that in 2015, Hillsong, I know, their revenue for the year was 180 million US? 80 of that, came from tithing from different locations around the world. This is 2015. But the rest of it came from their schools, from their um, uh, concerts, from their conferences, from their their royalties. 180 million. Did you know Bethel Church? Uh, I want to make sure I have this sat right. I told you, I'm naming names this morning, right? So Bethel Church, sorry, in 2018 made $36.7 million US. And again, I'm picking on Bethel and Hillsong because I, you know, I dug a little bit and I could find that. But this goes for Jesus culture, this goes for passion, this goes for any of the Christian... Like, what you have to understand is Christian evangelicalism is big business. Billions of dollars is, is, is from conferences. All those worship uh, concerts, those worship concerts you go to, the t-shirts, the sales. The, like, like, What's interesting is, is if you look at the people who run these things, these pastors of Hillsong, of Bethel, of Passion, they're millionaires. Oh, they're very covert about it, but they live like everybody else would do who has this kind of money. Now, please hear me very clearly. Capitalism is not part of Christianity. It has infiltrated Christianity and it has changed what we've done. Right, so... Consumerism and capitalism is what has infiltrated evangelical church. Just like liberalism for the mainline churches, well, we have our own problems. But the problem is, is this has now created some other subsets, and this is where we're going this morning. In the um, late 90s, early 2000s, there's something called the Emergent Church. A guy by the name of Brian McLaren wrote a book called New Kind of Christian. Caught everybody by storm. We're going to be talking about Mighty Brian this morning. And uh, what it does was, it basically says, hey, we just want to ask questions of Christianity. And by the way, I think it's great to ask questions of Christianity. Why? Because it helps us to make sure, A, what we're doing is biblical, B, but we're actually, you know, checking our methodology in our hearts. No problem there. But it didn't start, it just, it didn't stop at asking questions. It began to make statements as well, too. We'll get to that in a second. But from the emergent church, something called progressive Christianity has now emerged. And this is something that's, how, that's come out in the last 10 years. This is a form of Christianity that uses the guise of Christianity, but really isn't Christian at all. And again, I'm going to name names because, again, this is what we have to do. Before we do that, let me ask you. I call this sermon the un-gospel. So if I was to say to you, what is the gospel? Well, I'm going to give you four points of the gospel. This is why Alyssa Childers called her books Another Gospel. So when we think about the gospel, there are four aspects of it. And again, this is very basic, but these are four aspects of the gospel. One thing I want to note here, <clears throat> when I talk about the gospel, a lot of people talk, start at the fault, right? They start with the bad news. You have to understand the gospel needs to start with creation because what we have to really understand is that God did not create the world with sin. God created the world with free will, the choice to choose to sin. Right? That's the only way God could have authentic relationship with sentient beings is to give them the opportunity for rejection. Right. And again, that and again, that plays out in our own human relationships. So creation is the beginning of the gospel right? Now, of course, the fall and original sin is what the gospel uh, is going to directly address, right? Of course, redemption is the story of the Old Testament. And Jesus, what did he come? How do we redeem humanity? And of course, the gospel doesn't stop at the cross. It goes right to the end of the Bible to restoration, right? The restoration of all things. I would say to you, and we're going to see a quote by name of Greg Kokel, uh, Kokel in a second here, but there, this is the gospel, So what's the un-gospel? Well, according to progressive Christianity, this is the un-gospel. Now, I had to really dig because there's no uh, one person who speaks for it. So this is from a guy named Matthew Fox, but uh, again, from Richard Rohr, uh, Matthew Vine, uh, Jen Hatmaker, uh, Rachel Hell Evans. I've kind of cobbled together the four basics of the un-gospel. So the un-gospel starts off not with creation and God as a sovereign being, but as God's creative energy. And again, the way they talk about the beginning of all things, again, seems very Hinduistic to me. Again, if you study world religions, a lot of the language they use to apply to the creation event, it's about energy, right? And light. And again, God did say, let there be light. But creation in, in the traditional understanding, the orthodox understanding of the gospel is God a being created the world as he would see fit. In this one, creation just happens. And, and by the way, there's, there's, there's a being called God as well. The second part is when we talk about this idea of original sin, there's the idea of this original blessing. So progressive Christianity would say that original sin is too medieval. It's too negative. And again, I can understand why people would say, you know, Christians are, are too preoccupied with sin. I get that, Right. But to then say that we are then no longer dealing with sin is actually, I think, um, uh, a deep philosophical, biblical change in how the gospel teaches. So original sin, in the most simplistic form, simply says this. When you and I were born, we were born with a stain of sin. Right? Remember I've said to you, we don't sin and become sinners. We sin because we are sinners sinners, right? And again, we go to the Bible, and this is, this is clearly seen time to time again. Again, the most popular one, again, Romans, right? Paul lays this out in the most articulate way uh, possible. Like, humanity is born with this stain of sin. This is what the cross was about. This is what Jesus is about. This is what the new covenant of blood is about. Well, in the un-gospel or progressive Christians, they don't talk about original sin. They talk about original blessing. And again, Matthew Fox wrote an entire book, call uh, this idea of uh, original blessing. Perennialism. This is not about plants. This is not about uh, about planting anything. So perennialism is a very interesting concept that is gaining a lot of traction within this idea of progression of Christianity. Perennialism is something people believe that they may not realize what the label is. So has anybody ever said to you, aren't all religions the same? Aren't all religions are this way of looking at the world, and so this religion here sees God this way, and this religion sees God this way, and this religion sees God this way, and it's all equal. All roads lead to heaven. Well, in the progressive Christianity, they see other faith traditions, and that's the words they use. Uh, They'll say, um, our worldview or our faith tradition is this, but we accept other faith traditions. What they're basically saying is there's more ways to God than just Jesus. Right, and so we, as Christ followers, again according to scriptures, we would go. No, right. So perennialism is this idea that all roads lead to God, that all religions are equal, uh, and and all religions are basically different people trying to uh, get their uh, get their uh, uh, thinking around God. And finally, universalism. According to progressive Christianity, and again, I'll show you this in their writings, is they really believe that everybody will get to God. And even people who don't believe in God, atheists, right? (laughs) Uh, And again, there's some comical uh, ways they kind of approach it. But basically, they're saying, at the end of all time, everybody is going to get to God. Um, So remember to mention Greg uh, Kokel. Greg Kokel kind of parses out the gospel in this way, and I think it's important to understand this, because this is how we need to understand the gospel. So when we talk about this creation, we're really talking about how things began, right? So I've said this before, and I'll say it again. When Christians wrestle with this idea of, of evolution, or when Christians idea talk about this idea of creationism, what you really need to understand is the Hebrew Bible, chapters 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 and 2, they weren't about telling us the mechanisms of how God created things. For the Jewish people, for the Hebrews, what was important is who started it, and this is where mankind came from, humanity came from, right? So there can be a great deal of frustration amongst Christians with, well, okay, what do we have to do? And this is one of the things that we're going to be talking about, are Christians anti-science? We'll get to that, not today, but in another sermon. So what Greg Kokel will say is the gospel starts off with how things began, right? Not the mechanisms, but how. The second thing is, is the fall, how things got broken, right? So when sin entered this world, it has infected and affected each and every not just human beings, but also the environment, right? And not just uh, the environment. Remember I told you the three harmonies, harmony between God and humanity, God, uh, humanity, humanity, and humanity and creation. The three harmonies became the three discords, right? And so Greg Kogel will say the fall tells us how things got broken. And again, that's sin. Redemption is how things will get fixed, right? How do we have, how do we, how are we reconciled to God? And finally, restoration, how things will look once they are fixed. Again, Jesus talked about the kingdom of heaven and then talks and then projects us forward in the book of Revelation to the end of time. And again, the last two chapters of Revelation are a beautiful picture of the restoration of humanity, those who have chosen to follow Yahweh, those who have chosen to follow Jesus in relationship with him for eternity. Again, I'm choosing my words very carefully here. So Greg Kokel will say, this is the gospel, this is how it plays out. Now, you need to understand something you know me that I don't try to be controversial and I certainly don't try to name names, even with all the craziness that's going on with the pandemic. I, I try in abstraction to talk about, you know, whether it's a local church or not so local church. Um, I, try not to t- I, I try not to point people out because again, in my opinion, as a pastor, it's not my responsibility to pastor somebody else's church and it's certainly not my responsibility to tell other people how to believe. Now, what's interesting though is that I am actually called to, I am responsible to uh, my own church. You are watching, whether now or later, whether you consider yourself part of our church or not. But it's, it's also my responsibility to kind of help you to understand how to navigate the world. So what's going on right now with this idea of progressive Christianity is there are reasons why Christians are leaving the church. <clears throat> There's a whole subset on Twitter, on blogs, called deconversion. It's of people who were once Christian leaving Christianity to become atheists or leaving Christianity to become a progressive Christian. The reasons why Christian leaders are either becoming progressive or simply walking away from their faith. From Bart Campolo, Tony Campolo, Rachel Hal Evans, Jen Hatmaker, Michael Gunger, Rob Bell, Richard War, Brian Claren, I told you I was gonna name names, and others, we are seeing many deconversion stories on Twitter. Uh, ex-evangelical, right, this hashtag and the kind of people talking about the reasons why they left the church. Now, the Western church has become toxic. I've said this, and I, and I will say this again. You think you know what's wrong with the church. Try being a pastor or being somebody who actually peeks behind the sermon. Um, I was asked to speak to some Bible college students a number of years ago, and I opened up my talk with them by saying this. Being a pastor is, uh, is very much like the Wizard of Oz. And they're, of course, of course, looking at me. I said, you know, in when Dorothy and, and, and her friends stand before Oz, it's this big head, and, and they're very terrified, right? The mighty Oz. Well, Toto, the dog, goes over and pulls the curtain aside, and there's this little fat man pulling levers, and he is what Oz is. So the church can be very much like that. They can see the church in this kind of grandiose way. But really, when you look behind the scenes, the church isn't really that pretty. And again, recent scandals from Robbie Zacharias to Carl Lentz to Bill Hybels to, again, just pick. We're seeing this. right? We're seeing this. The church, the Western church, has become toxic. From entertainment, celebrities, wealth to abuse and misuse of power, please hear me very clearly. There are people who have been hurt and abused by the church. The church and church leadership and people within the church have absolutely abused their power and um, i don't I don't make any any um exceptions for that like people who have done that deserve and and need to be called into account for sure right and so What happens is when we are hurt by the church, we have to make a decision. And the problem is the decision that many people can make is that the church is Jesus. We as human beings are imperfect representations of Jesus. Again, this is what the Bible teaches us time and time again. But you have to do something with hurt. You have to do something with suffering. You have to do something with this, and it can turn inwards, it can turn outward, and it becomes something that actually becomes toxic. Those behind the scenes have seen what the church has become and have walked away. And again, you go through Jen Hatmaker, Rachel L. Evans, Bart Well, Bart Campolo, of all these yahoos, I actually respect the most because Bart Campolo was an evangelical, then became a progressive Christian, and then she became a humanist atheist, right? So I actually appreciate Bart Campolo's honesty by saying, you know what, I don't even believe any of this anymore, and just walks away and calls himself an atheist. These other ones, unfortunately, will say then... Um, the church is actually wrong. So here's how it looks. These people who make stances, make claims, or are hurt by the church. Uh, uh, Michael Kruger has this great uh, book coming out and a blog post called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity. He says these are how progressive Christians kind of talk about it. So the first thing is they, t- they start off with a story of hurt. They start off by saying, I was once one of you. And, of course, your ears, your ears go, oh, they know. And the second thing to say is that I was just a a, a sincere seeker asking questions. And again, nobody in their right mind goes, well, that's how could that be wrong? Right? I grew up in a church that asking questions was absolutely not looked up was was frowned upon. This is one of the reasons why I left the church when I was 16. Because I actually had questions. Where did the Bible come from? Why is Christianity true? Why Jesus? Why not Muhammad? Why not Buddha? Why not, you know, Confucius? Why not all these other religions? Right? I asked questions. And again, the church, my youth pastor, the leadership didn't like questions. And so, of course, I had to go seek questions, right? I had to go seek answers to my questions. So a lot of these individuals who have felt this way will say stuff like, hey, I used to be one of you, and I asked questions. And, and, and then what happens is they become the victim because leaders then say, well, no, no, you can't, you can't question this, and you can't you can ask it. And then what happens is they'll say, well, I went out and I found the truth. And here's the new truth. Right, And so that's, the, that's kind of the playbook of what this looks like. And the fact is, the church is just reaping what it sowed. Right, like You can't help think to yourself, when a church asks for $7 million to build a building, but then tells you they care about poor, the poor people, you feel like there's a bit of a disconnect, don't you? When you hear about a pastor, when you hear about a, an author... A speaker, a worship leader, act in ways in, in, in ways that just you kind of go, how how is that possible? When you see Christian leaders, you know, preacher in sneakers. Again, one of the books we're going to get to, right? Uh, by the way, Preachers and Sneakers, uh, the new book. You definitely got to get it. It's a fantastic book. Anyways, when we see Christians living in multi million dollar homes, wearing watches that are worth like thirty forty thousand dollars, wearing clothing that you know anybody else who were multimillionaires and celebrities were. It's, diffi- it's difficult to reconcile that with the message of who Jesus is. It's kind of why I I, I, I founded UCC. is because I wanted to see if we could maybe get past all of the toxic stuff the Western church has become and find a way to kind of embrace what our New Testament Christianity looked like. This is why I still deliver milk, because... I just wanted you to know. I want you know those who know UCC to know that um, as I ask you to 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 uh, support UCC financially, well, I, I want you also to know as well too that I work outside of the church to support my own family financially. Because we don't want money to be the reason why people go ah, I don't really like that, right? So. UCC has been an experiment to see if we can't get rid of this stuff to kind of get back to what Jesus is saying and to get back how the New Testament church operated, well, then we're kind of missing the bone. And again, all these writers, I just feel like giving them a hug, right? I feel like giving them a hug, but then I feel like um, that there has to be, after the hug, there has to be a, a very firm kind of conversation. And that conversation says, just because you are hurt doesn't mean you get to change the Bible. Just because you have a new way of looking at the world, doesn't mean you get to tell Jesus what he actually said. So when we think about this, we ask ourselves, what does it look like? We have to really realize that progressive Christianity, and again, remember, we have to look at ourselves first before we look at the world, becomes something very different than what Christianity is, and I'll show you in a second. Let me give you a quote by Alyssa Childers before we jump into this next part here, which is going to be a doozy progressives, again, this is from Alyssa Childer's book, which again, called Another Gospel, I recommend you get progressives are not just a group of Christians who are changing their minds on social issues and politics, right, so progressive Christianity isn't about Democrat Republican, isn't about liberal or NDP, it is not about that, remember I told you, Christianity isn't about politics whatever political view you want to have have at it, right at UCC, we're not a church to tell you how to vote, right so Christianity and politics was never meant to be uh, in an unhealthy relationship. She goes on to say this. According to their most prominent thought leaders, authors, and speakers, they often deny core essential doctrines of the faith, which leads them to preach an entirely different gospel. So according to progressive Christianity, and again, this is what liberalism of the mainline churches was, according to progressive Christianity, revelation is still unfolding. Beliefs and behaviors can still be modified today. This is very important. As our culture shifts, and again, pick a topic, right? Progressive Christianity, liberalism would say, well, the Bible spoke about this 5,000 years ago, and that was appropriate 5,000 years ago, but is it appropriate today? Jesus talked about this 2,000 years ago, but is this appropriate for today? And again, I would say to you, these are good questions, right? But again, as, as I've said before and I've shown before, these actually have really good answers, right? And so... What we're going to do now is we're going to jump down the rabbit hole, right? So what's interesting is in James and, uh, again, 1 John, because, again, John's always in my head right now, James chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Dear brothers and sisters, not many of you should become teachers in the church, for we who teach will be judged more strictly. Now, understand something. I have named names, and I'm going to show some quotes. I'm going to actually show you more names. And I'm doing this because as a Christian, as a teacher, as a pastor, everything that I say is judged according to the Bible. You guys know this. If I say anything that's unbiblical, if I say anything that changes or modifies who Jesus is, you have the absolute freedom to call me out on it, right? And again, my sermons are not hidden, they're all online. I don't know if you have that much free time, but I just want you to know, I believe the Bible to be true. Therefore, whatever I say, I try as much as possible to align with the Bible, right? And anytime that I've said, well, this is my best guess, I've tried to say to you, this is my best guess, right? So when we talk about Christian teachers out there today, if you are a a pastor, a teacher, a blogger, a writer, a speaker, you call yourself a Christian, well, your teachings, what you say, what you write, according to the Bible, and again, I could have shown a lot more scriptures about this. You're gonna be held accountable. Remember what 1 John chapter 4, 1 says then? Dear friends, do not believe everyone who claims to speak by the Spirit. You must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God. For there are many false prophets in the world. Right? Remember when John says this in 1 John? So we have three witnesses: the spirit, the water, and the blood, and all three agree. Well, I would say there are three witnesses of what it means to be an orthodox or orthopraxic Christian. There's three witnesses of Christianity, the Bible, Jesus, and and Jesus, I'm going to put sin and salvation, and the atonement. So I'm going to just show you very briefly uh, about these three parts here. So, when we look at progressive Christianity, and by the way i 'm going to pick on a guy named Richard Rohr a lot because when you according to amazon bestseller list he's up there, so he's one of the most prominent ones i'm going to go after Richard Rohr a lot in this series. The Jewish scriptures, this is Richard Rohr, which are full of antidotes of destiny, failure, sin, and grace, are almost offer almost no self-evident philosophical or theological conclusions that are always true. We even have four often conflicting versions of the life of Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There is no one clear theology of God, Jesus, or history presented despite our attempts to pretend that there is. Just so you know, this is categorically false. And again, historically, anthropo- anthropologically, but again, Richard Rohr says this. And people go, oh, I didn't know that. Well, the reason you didn't know that because it's not true. A guy named James Berklow says this. Anything in the Bible that looks miraculous or, or contrary to the normal functions of the natural world is not factual, but rather is mythological. So what you have here is is is. Progressive Christians, what they will do, as liberalism has done, is basically say the Bible really isn't literal or true, but it's mythology, it's fable. Again, Brian McLaren. The Bible is a portable library of poems, prophecies, histories, fables, parables, letters, sage sayings, quarrels, and so on. And again, you take out fables, and I would say to you, yeah, like sage sayings, the book of Proverbs. I get that, right? But when he uses the word fables, what he's trying to say is fictional, not meant to be true or not meant to be applied. Peter Enns, this guy, by the way, I have some history with. A number of years ago when I was a youth pastor, I was at a youth conference where this yahoo was a speaker. Well, I had a bit of a large youth group at the time, and we walked out of his, of his teaching because, again, he was saying stuff that I was like, okay, wait, what's going on here, right? Again, this was my first kind of exposure to this thinking. Peter Enns says this, if we're fixed on the Bible as a book that has to get history right, the Gospels become a crippling problem. Just so you know, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, the Bible is one of the most historically accurate documents that we have. And again, this is not just from Christians. This is from anthropologists and historians. Rob Bell. Anyways, the Bible is a profoundly human book. And Rob Bell begins to use this as this idea of, because it's a human book, that we don't have to take it as as divine. right? A guy named, uh, well, Rachel Held Evans. What business do I have describing uh, as inerrant and infallible a text that presumes a flat, by the way, the Bible doesn't say the earth's flat, and stationary earth takes slavery for granted and presupposes patriarchal norms like polygamy? Again, just to be clear, the Bible doesn't say any of that or do any of that, okay? So what's interesting is that these individuals... Thought leaders within progressive Christianity have basically dismantled the Bible from being divine, from being true, and being historical. And because of that, then if if, if the Bible isn't that, then you get to say whatever you want. Remember this idea of original sin versus original blessing? Matthew Fox is the guy that really kind of uh, wrote the book on this and again has been adopted within this with the, with these circles. There is no question whatsoever in my mind that 99% know about original sin and barely 1% have ever in their lives heard about original blessing. This is the great price we have paid in the West West for following a one-sided fall redemption theology. Fall redemption theology has ignored the blessing that creation is because of its anthropomorphic preoccupation with sin. And again, you have to go back to read the rest of the book. I don't recommend you do unless you really want to waste your time. But basically, the idea was is that we are not born with sin, that we sin... After that fact, we were born perfect uh, according to that. Oh, you know who else thinks that? Richard Ward. Remember I told you I'm going to go after Richard Ward. Oh, by the way, enneagrams? Fun fact, enneagrams was started off by a cult leader in 1916. The nine enneagrams that we have today were given by a, a spiritual being, by automatic writing to somebody in the 1940s. It was imported in the 1970s into a Catholic university in Boston. And then has since made its way into Christianity. If you've done your Enneagram, I'd ignore it. If you're interested in Enneagram, I wouldn't bother. When Enneagrams first came out, I thought, oh, it's another personality profile like Myers-Briggs, like, the, uh, like uh, a Berkman, colors Disc, whatever. It is not. It has occultic backgrounds and occultic roots. Did you know that? I didn't know that. Do you know who proponent? it? Richard Rort. True spiritual formation flows from the belief that we are born with souls in perfect form. Richard Rohr believes that we are perfect when we are born. And subsequently to that, we sin and then become sinners and become deformed. Again, this goes against the idea of this idea of original sin. So universalism. There's a woman by the name of Nadia, uh, Nadia Bowles-Weber. She was tattooed and she was kind of punk rock. And when she first burst on the scene, all the evangelicals and Christians were like, look, look how cool we are. Look at who she is, right? She had a clerical collar on. Well, that only lasted about a year until she started talking about her beliefs. And one of the beliefs she has was this idea of universalism. Here's what universalism is. I confess that I'm a Christian, Christocentric universalist. What that means to me is that whatever God was accomplishing, especially on the cross, that Christological event was for the restoration and redemption and reconciliation of all things and all people and all creation, everyone. Universalism basically says, and again, this is where Rob Bell and his whole love wins comes from, is this idea that at the end of time, everybody, whether they're Christian, atheist, uh, Muslim, Buddhist, uh, Hindu, uh, Igna pick your category, everybody will get to heaven in the end now, um, as a Christian, as a Christ follower, somebody who bases their beliefs upon the bible it, it's it 's very obvious that that 's not even remotely true Paul Young, Paul Young, writer of the shack, just so you know i have I, I liked the shack, I thought it was a great fictional book because that 's all it was it wasn 't theology. Well, Paul Young uh, subsequently to the Shack wrote a book called Lies We Believe, and it's a series of essays, and in it, Paul Young talks about why he's also a universalist. Are you suggesting that everyone is saved, that you believe in universal salvation? That is exactly what I'm saying. So Paul Young has kind of come out and said, no, no, I actually believe that everyone becomes a a, a Christ follower. Now, the reason I'm using these quotes is because I don't want to make people say things. I want to use their own quotes to kind of talk about what they believe. Atonement. You've heard uh, a lot of talk recently, and again, a local pastor has even kind of uh, latched on to this a little bit, but this idea of the atonement becomes very revulsive to the progressive Christianity. Sin and the cross and blood all seems very archaic and primitive. Richard Rohr, remember I'm going to go after this guy, how and why would God need a blood sacrifice before God could love what God had created? Is God that needy, unfree, unloving, rule-bound, and unable to forgive? Michael Gunger of the band Gunger, two thousand seventeen. That God needed to be appeased with blood is not beautiful. It's horrific, right? These are uh, again the uh, the predominant sayings here. One more before we, uh, we get out of this. Uh, uh, Anna Skates, she's a children's pastor. She wrote this whole article on how parents should talk about Easter to the children. The point of Easter story isn't whether or not Jesus literally rose from the dead. That's her capital, it's not mine. We're missing the point if we're fighting over the historical accuracy of the bodily resurrection. Steve Chalk, he's the guy that coined the phrase cosmic child abuse. I hear that when you, when you kind of delve into this world, you hear this a lot, it's cosmic child abuse. The cross was cosmic child abuse, right? That God didn't need this, right? And again, please hear me very clearly. I have no problem with an atheist saying, I don't believe the Bible. It just tells me where I need the conversation. And I have no problem with somebody saying to me, I don't understand the Bible or, 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 or this is what I, I'm, I'm wrestling with, again, I'm with you on that as well. But when someone starts telling me what the Bible says without actually kind of taking the entire Bible in, 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 uh, into account, that's when I get a little bit fornicity. I don't know if that's a word, but you get that. You know, was as I was reading through and as I was diving into all these writers and all these authors, this passage of Scripture kept whispering into my mind. I think the Holy Spirit was kind of connecting me to it. For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They will follow their own desires and look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. Christianity is fracturing, and it's fracturing along a whole bunch of different fault lines, and I get that. The saddest part for me, however, is that we haven't even really wrestled with what the Bible says, and we're already starting to reinterpret it with what the Bible's saying. Again, Alyssa Childers, a quote from her book, uh, as, we, as we close here, says this. When I have doubts about my faith or deeper, or deep nagging questions that keep me up at night, I don't have the luxury of finding my truth because I'm committed to the truth. I want to know what is real. I want my worldview, the lens through which I see the world, to line up with reality. God either exists or he doesn't. The Bible is his word or it's not. Jesus was raised from the dead, or he wasn't. Christianity is true or isn't. There is no my truth when it comes to God. You know, I hesitated this with this sermon, and my wife was very uh, chiding me on it, because, of course, she's very much a live and let live. And again, I try to be that person. I don't know how successful I am, but the thing that bothers me the most... is when Christians modify, edit the Bible to suit their own lives. I agree with you that there are things in the Bible that can horrify me. There's questions I have that I'm not sure if I have the answers. But that doesn't mean I get to tell God what he's all about. You know, when I was reading through Richard Rohr. Uh, Rachel Edel Evans, Jen Hatmaker, and again, uh, listening to the Deconstruction podcast, the Liturgist podcast, and again, there's a whole host of these progressive Christian podcasts. The thing that kept coming to mind was, these people, and again, I don't mean to use that in the pejorative sense, it just felt like me that they thought they were smarter than God. It kind of goes back to the garden when the snake asked Eve, did God really say, and then the snake, the devil, begins to reinterpret God's command in a way that's more appeasing and ego-driven to Eve. I was texting a pastor friend of mine, and he said to me that, you know, progressive Christianity is basically, uh, I'm not a Christian anymore, but I still need to make money, so I'm going to write some books. I kind of chuckled, but he, he's not actually far, far from the truth. I, I, I just want you to know something. You have the Bible. You can open it and you can read it yourself. I don't want to tell you what to believe. You get to always check and double-check anything that I say, and I am absolutely okay with that. But what I will not do is think that, A, I'm smarter than God, and, B, begin to change or edit the Bible based upon my own lifestyle and my own worldview of the world. Because once we do that, once we start self-editing God, what happens is he's no longer God anymore, but he's basically a reflection of myself. And that's the dangerous part. Let me close. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17. You know, Paul, right to the church in Rome, and again, the church in Rome is going through a whole bunch of things. is going through persecution, and by persecution, I mean killing, the Neronian persecution, Right? Paul says this, for I'm not ashamed of, the gospel, of, of this good news, the gospel, about Christ. It is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentiles. This good news tells us how God makes us right in his sight. This is accomplished from start to finish by faith. As the scripture says, it is through faith that a righteous person has life. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the good news of of, of the Bible. I'm not ashamed of who Jesus is. I am ashamed when the church doesn't live up to that. I am ashamed when I don't live up to that. But I'm never ashamed of Jesus. I'm never ashamed of the Bible. I'm never embarrassed by the Bible. Because most of the problems people have with it, I've figured out why and how to communicate it. Sometimes someone asks me a question, and my answer is, I don't know. That's a great question, right? Right? But then I don't get to say to that person, well, I know what God really meant, or I know what God meant to say. As Christians, I, and again, I use that term in the, most, in, in the best sense possible. The Bible is how we understand God. I believe it to be divine. I, do believe it, I believe it to be authoritative. And I believe it to be the entirety of it is teachable for me today. When Paul says, all scripture is God-breathed, What's interesting, he's saying that to Timothy in 1 Timothy, but remember at that point in time, Paul didn't have the New Testament. right? The New Testament was being put together, the, the apostles were all writing together and that was going to be put together. The scriptures he was talking about was the Old Testament because that's what they had. right? And so we need to understand that all the Bible is God-breathed. The reason why liberalism, the re- reason why progressive Christianity is going to kill certain types of Christianity, the reason why the liberalism is killing off Anglicanism, Presbyterianism, Lutheranism, the reason it's killing it off? If the gospel has power, the un-gospel has no power. If the gospel has power, the power of the Holy Spirit, the power, the very power of God, to change lives, to transform, to convict, to challenge, all these amazing things that are part of our journey with Jesus, well, the un-gospel has nothing. It has nothing. And because it doesn't have anything, it's not going to convince anyone of the truth of who God is and what Jesus is in their lives. From the atonement, Jesus' work of sin and salvation, to the gospel story. I urge you, I encourage you, and I perhaps need to, not yell at you, but just to say, believe what you believe, but make sure your belief is based upon the Bible if you believe the Bible to be true. This is really an important conversation. It's the fundamental, the essential conversation that we need to have first and foremost as Christians. Uh, my phone has been buzzing, which means I have some questions. This is your chance to text in some questions about anything I've said today. And uh, I'm going to pray, and when I have another song, I'll come back and, and answer questions. Dear Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are true, that you are are transcendent, and the gospel isn't mine to change or modify, but instead, the gospel is mine to accurately represent by my belief and by my behavior. Orthodoxy, orthopraxy, how I think and how I believe and how I behave. Lord, I pray for those I've spoken about today. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would convict them of their heresy of their false teaching. Lord Jesus, I don't want to modify you. I don't want to change you. said, I want to glorify you, and I want to share you with the world that desperately needs to hear it. And I pray, Lord, that each person watching, no matter who they are, what their background is, that rather than reading other books, rather than listening to other people, that they would just go back and read the Bible. That we would be people of the Word, as, as we have been for, for centuries, that we'd go back to being people of the Word. Not that we have all the answers, but instead we are sincere seekers of the truth, and the truth is found in you, Lord Jesus, as revealed in Scripture. Holy Spirit, be our guide. Be the the catalyst for this change in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Stick with us. I'll be back after to answer any questions. Hey, welcome back. Got some great questions. Maria, uh, Easter does not have pagan roots uh, because Easter is Passover. Now, the uh, medieval understanding of Esther, which is where the name kind of comes from, can have uh, uh, pagan applications. But the idea of Passover and Easter in the Christian tradition has no pagan roots. Just fun fact for you. So got some questions. So first question is, you say theological controversy is about language, not about truth. Um, I don't say that. That's what liberalism says, just just to be clear. With this, what do we do when there's so many translations of the Bible and some things can be misinterpreted? Some translations take more symbolic liberties in their language, whereas some others are more literal. How can we know what truth is if there is so many linguistic differences and confusions? Great question. You know what you need to do? Pick up a linear Bible. Uh, Whether it's the Old Testament, it'll have the English and have the Hebrew underneath it. In the New Testament, it'll have the English and the Greek underneath it. Now, you're saying to yourself, why would I want to do that? If you want to understand the literal translations, then you'll need to understand the original language. But the interesting thing about Hebrew and Greek, uh, producer Brock and I were talking about this morning, is that these languages are still spoken today. So they're not that mysterious to us in regards of how we unpack it. It's not like, uh, and we were talking about this with the Rosetta Stone, right? Hieroglyphics, Egyptian hieroglyphics, we don't speak that language today, although (laughs) emojis can look like that, right? So we had to find the Rosetta Stone to help us to translate uh, Egyptian hieroglyphics to English. Well, we didn't need to do that with Hebrew and Greek because we still spoke these languages. Now, Greek was, was of the first century Greek. But again, a lot of the words are still used today. So the methods and rules of interpretation are still there today. And yes, there are uh, translations out there. I would say the message is probably one of the worst translations I've read. Just, just to let you know. But uh, again, if you go on Bible Gateway and look at any of the translations, most of them are, are, are pretty accurate, and they'll tell you. But again, as I always do, I bring up four different translations to kind of see what is actually going on. I use NLT, I use the NASV, I use the ESV, and I use the uh, NKJV. Right. Again, four different perspectives, and again, it'll help you to get a better understanding. But please understand, translations aren't. There isn't a. People say there's rooms for interpretation. There isn't actually. It's like saying, hey, you know what? There's many different ways of of uh, of taking out someone's tonsils. You can go up the backside. You can make a hole through the back and work your way upwards, or you can. There isn't, right? It, it's a very precise way. There's, the best, there's a better way of doing it. Likewise with math problems, right? Oh, there's, there's, there's different ways. Now, there might be different formulas to get the same answers, but you just can't take a, a math problem and make up whatever you want with it, right? Language has rules, and, and those rules are known to us. Therefore, we can know how to, how to interpret them. Second question, if not Enneagram, is something else you recommend? Yes, don't use the Enneagram. Please get away from the Enneagram. I I should just do an entire teaching on where the Enneagram came from. I had no idea. I had no idea. It just is an offhanded reference by Richard Rohr. Basically, I've just made a decision. Whatever Jen Hatmaker or Richard Rohr says, I'm going to do the exact opposite now. Um, And so he made this comment, and he wrote this book on the Enneagram. So then I took it upon myself is. Where do I find out where the Enneagram came from? And I was horrified to find out the origins and the roots of Enneagram. And the person on our, on our comment page who's the one that Jesus loves or whoever it is, yeah, I get that, right? Yes, I came after yoga, pagan. And yes, I'm coming after the Enneagram, pagan, occultic. And again, you should just know this, right? You know what the better ones are? Myers, Briggs, or Berkman, right? The Berkman would be the best. Now, here's a problem with the personality t- uh, tests. The problem with personality tests is we know the questions are asking, so therefore we will answer them the way we want. This is why, as at UCC, we will never give a spiritual gifts test because spiritual gifts tests don't actually aren't, aren't accurate because all they do is tell us uh, we answer the questions about based upon what we think about ourselves, and or what or how we wish we were. The best kind of tests ask questions that you don't understand what they're trying to get for right? So one of the best personality tests that you can get out there is one that you cannot find online. It's called the MMPI, the Minnesota Multiphasic Personality Inventory. It's like 800 questions, right? And what they want to do is they want to hide what they're asking you, right? The Berkman is is a great test as well too. But again, you need somebody to give it to you so that you can get an honest assessment of it rather than just telling people what you think you are. So yes, don't go for the Enneagram, but go for those ones as well too. Next question. On progressive Christianity, would you define the gay Christian movement as a follow-up of progression Christian movement? There are many gay Christians out there practicing gay lifestyle as well who are pastors and clergy, but would you say this is progressive Christianity because they would have to change parts of the Bible or interpret it differently to justify themselves? Yes, progressive Christianity or liberalism. Please understand something, okay? We as evangelicals have gone after same-sex attraction in a way that has been very unhealthy. And the reason I say unhealthy is because we've allowed heterosexuals to go ahead and sleep around, right? The same rules we would apply to same-sex attraction is the same rules we would apply to heterosexual attraction. And what I mean by that is apart outside of the, uh, the confines of marriage, heterosexuals aren't allowed to act sexually whichever they want. Right, And just so you know, the confines of, of biblical understanding of marriage is seen very clearly in Scripture. The only way you could change that is by changing how you understand the Bible. I said this to you before. If, you, if I was to ask you, what is the most promiscuous culture you can imagine? You may answer with um, uh, uh, Las Vegas today. And you can answer with other things. I would say to you that the Roman Empire in the first century was and is the most sexually promiscuous culture in history. You had Roman emperors who were pedophiles, who were incestuous, married their sisters, married their brothers. Ew! Right? They were individuals who, again, not to get too deep into it, but with, it, it, it was just as horrific as you can imagine. The early church kept a sexual ethic that was very Jewish right? And, and what's interesting about that is they had many examples around them of what they could do, but instead they chose what they were. And again, to the Gentiles, Acts chapter 15, when James gives the Gentiles the rules by which they says, he uses the word porneo, which is again from the book of Leviticus, is this idea of this is what is appropriate for Gentiles to act. And again, Paul to the church in Corinth, hey, heterosexuals, it doesn't mean you get to act whichever way you want to just because you're heterosexuals. So as Christ followers, authentic biblical Christ followers, look at the Bible, and again, please don't take my word for this, just look at scripture, and then you get to say to yourself, okay, what does the Bible actually say? And then wrestle with whatever that is for you. Uh, I understand identity, what we are, is so close and dear to us. But my identity is based upon Jesus. And Jesus tells me there's parts of my life, there's dark places in my life that I need to bring into under his lordship. And so, yes, progressive Christianity and liberalism, if you take the Bible to be mythological fables and all the other things we've talked about, then yes, you get to make the Bible say whatever you want. Uh... Next question. So this comes about halfway to the sermon somewhere. Sermon you mentioned how the ex-evangelical stories are about getting hurt by the church and then modifying the Bible. Thinking upon myself, I've been, st- I'm st- I've been still hung up about the Rabbi Zacharias thing, and hurt seems to have made a little critical of the Bible. You said you wanted to give people a hug, then say you can't modify the Bible. What practical steps can I take to reconcile that hurt and avoid falling into progressive Christianity? It's a fantastic question. Ravi Zacharias, Bill Hybels, uh, Mark Driscoll, um, uh, again, just just any, any one of the people in the last whatever years of Christians who have fallen. We must always separate Christians from Christ. I know of the hurt that you feel because I myself have been hurt by the church and by those within the church. Again, you think you have it bad, just try being a pastor today. All I would say to you is, we have to always fix our eyes upon Jesus. We must always remember that human beings are flawed. When a person's behavior affects us so much that it affects our Christianity, this is a good warning sign that we look too much towards people. And so as, as a Christ follower, I love reading and talking to people, but I don't use people as the way I define Christianity. I look to the Bible and I look to Jesus. Read Corinthians. First and second Corinthians is a great handbook on what not to do as Christians, right? The people in this church are acting and behaving in ways that are just, I don't, I don't know, what, even know what to tell you, but again. Time and time again, Paul brings them back to who Jesus is and what Jesus commanded. But just so you know, here's another way for you to help reconcile the hurt. Think of your own life. We can look at Ravi Zacharias. We can look at all these individuals who have fallen. And we get to say, that's terrible. But because they're so public, their sins have been magnified. Not, not to diminish it, but this magnified. Because if I was to ask you, if I was to ask myself, what's that sin that you do that you wish nobody knew about? And now I'm going to take that sin and I'm going to broadcast it to everybody on the planet. How are you going to feel about yourself now? Because what we have to understand is celebrity culture magnifies a personality but also magnifies sin. And what Ravi Zacharias was accused of and what he did is no different than what we can also do in our own lives. And so, having grace and forgiveness for Ravi Zacharias is difficult, but we have to have grace and forgiveness for ourselves, because what we do as well is also something that can actually take us away from what Jesus wants as well. Um, you mentioned three main branches of Christianity, one of them being Protestantism. I imagine the second is Catholicism, uh, but what did you mean by the third one? So. Apologies so there's two branches of Christianity uh, Protestant and Catholic. The subset is mainline is broken up into two right so evangelical and then uh, and then mainline so there's not three there's two Catholic and Protestant, and within Protestant there are two uh, subcategories of uh, of mainline, which is Lutheran, united Anglican, Presbyterian, the big seven, and then there's evangelicals, which is again brrr, Pentecostals, Baptists, uh, Alliance, which is what we are, and again, the list goes on. So uh, I apologize. I didn't mean to make this, say there's three there. That That's what I meant. Last question. What should we do if we associate with a progressive Christian organization? Buy that music or read the books by these progressive Christians? Should we support them or should we cut off all ties with them? In regards to organizations and books, yes. If you have books by these individuals, um, i get rid of them. Uh, Recycling is always good. And I would take the time you devote to these books and just get back to the Bible. Um, I would recommend you pick up Alyssa Childer's book. Oh, just so you know, if you don't want to buy Alyssa Childer's book, she has a podcast. Alyssa Childer's, just go on your podcast, wherever you get your podcast, and just put in Alyssa Childer's. Uh, Alyssa is A L I S A, and Childer's, Child with an E R S. Fantastic podcast. She goes through this. She talks to people who have become progressive, but come back to Jesus. Amazing podcast. There's like 170 episodes. They're all between 45 minutes an hour. I like long form just because I like to get the deep stuff. Shocker. But go there and listen to it. But yes, don't associate. But if you know somebody in your life that is progressive Christian, get her book. Michael J. Kruger as well, too. Have conversations, because cr- progressive Christianity is not Christianity. So talk to them gently and graciously as you would an atheist, because they have departed from what it means to be a Christ follower and have gone a different way. And just like anyone who has done that, if I would talk the same way as someone who became a Buddhist, someone became a Hindu who was a Christian, I would talk the same way of a Christian who became an atheist. You used have a different conversation. So progressive Christianity isn't an authentic Christian, so you'd have those conversations with someone personally in your life. As apart from all this stuff, um, I wouldn't have anything to do with it. I would stop buying Christian music. I would stop attending Christian concerts. I would try to bankrupt this part of Christian culture. I know, capitalism. And I would say, hey, let's get back to what Jesus really meant for us in regards to community and all that. Whew! Sorry. Lot to talk about, lots of content. Great news is my notes and the sermon will be online. You want to go back and and hear. And again, if you have any questions, email me Raja R A J A at U C C Waterloo. Of course, I would love to uh, I would love to answer any questions. Just a quick note: we are going ahead with our gatherings for July and August. So, Church on the Hill for July, we'll be getting uh, we'll be sending out uh, waivers for that for those of you who want to attend, and also giving you the address. So looking forward to seeing people again. Um, it's a it's a beautiful field. It's outdoors. We have a kids program. Families, you are absolutely invited. Um, and so it's going to be a great time of gathering together. All the safety protocols will be in place. And it looks like again in our community, the uh, through the vaccination program and through all we been doing, the uh, the COVID uh, people are are like the cases are going COVID people. The COVID cases are going down. we just going to be fantastic. So July looking forward to seeing all of you. You're absolutely invited. There's a survey that we've posted. You can absolutely put your thoughts in there for that. And so, uh, and it'll be in Waterloo Park in the church in August. Again, excited for that. And hopefully in September, we'll be back in the theater once again. And of course, as always, thank you to all of you who... Um, have been supporting UCC. Uh, we had to make a big purchase this past week for a new projector. This is just one of the things that, unfortunately, we have to do. The one that we had, someone emailed me and saying, hey, projector, how old is it? Oh, 2006. They stopped making it in 2006. So we can't even get parts for it anymore. So therefore, we have to get uh, a new projector. And we have to get one for a big uh, venue. Not only that, though, but we we've been giving like throughout this pandemic face masks, uh, uh, gift cards of all different kinds for people who were in need. So, if you are somebody who or know somebody who needs help, as a church, we want to be there to support them, and we're only able to do that because of you. So, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And if you've never given yet before, text to give or e-transfer. You're absolutely welcome to do so as you see fit. We are so uh, humbled and just, just overjoyed able to do so so that we as a church are able to continue to, uh, to um, survive, but also to, uh, to uh, help out with the community as well too. Okay, lots of information. Let's pray. Let's wrap this puppy up. Dear Jesus. You are Lord and master of everything. The Bible uses the phrase Lord to talk about you all the time. And Jesus, I just want you to be Lord of my life. I want you to be the Lord of all our lives. And, and what that means is, is that you are supreme above all things. Jesus, you are the focus of our lives. And everything else is secondary from that. I just pray, Holy Spirit, right now, for those who are watching, whether now or at a different time, that you would just... You would convict, you would change, you would transform, whatever it would be, Lord God, so that we would be true and authentic disciples of you. Lord, help us to get back into your word. Your word is clear. It's, it's not as confusing as people seem to make it think it is. There are absolutely parts of it that can be confusing, but Lord, your spirit is with us as we read this. So I just pray, God, that you would help us to understand and just have a fresh revelation of who you are as revealed by your word. Now may the love of the Father, the grace of your Son, the communion fellowship of the Holy Spirit rest and abide with each of us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for sticking with us. Thanks for the questions, of course. And uh, don't forget the survey and everything that's coming up. We'd love to hear from you, and we will see you next Sunday. Take care. Blessings.